Well, good morning. It's good to see you all. My name is Ryan Moore. I'm one of the pastors here. If you brought a Bible, you can go ahead and open it to the book of Acts. We'll be in chapter 17. Before I read this, uh, this I did not say this in the first service, so consider this to be extra, all right? But uh, just by way of being on the session, being leadership in the church, maybe a voice for that for y'all, I just want to continue on behalf of our leadership to reiterate and remind y'all that, um, one, we are, we are constantly looking for and waiting for and longing for the day when we can be without masks. I feel like it's a good time to do that. And I don't want us to lose sight of that. Um, and I hope that in the, in the weeks to come, we'll continue to uh, put forth communication about that. But we're so grateful for y'all, and we know this is a burden. Um, and we, we, we are thankful, though, that you're here with us uh, in, in light of that. And we ask that you continue to pray for us in our own wisdom and discernment as we look forward to that day when that day will be. Um, but I just wanted to remind you all of that and remind, remind you all that we are excited about that day too. Um, and just uh, we're thankful that you all are willing to be here with us uh, given the circumstances. <clears throat> Having said that, in the book of Acts chapter 17, <clears throat> I want to remind us before I read this how we get to this point. It's kind of a unique place in Paul's uh, missionary journey here. We started uh, last week in chapter 16. This is the second missionary journey of Paul, Silas, and he picks up Timothy, right? And they go to Philippi. This is not really what they had planned, but this is what the Lord had for them, and they're in Philippi. And uh, just if you recall, they get, you know, a lot of, a lot of great things happen. They get thrown in jail, and then they get released, and maybe it's time for you all to move on. So they go down to Thessalonica, and they meet in the synagogues, and they do their, their normal thing, and they go to the Gentiles. Well, the Jews in that town were, as we've seen along the way, are very angry about what Paul's preaching and teaching. And so there's this riot of sorts. And it's <clears throat> so bad that it pushes Paul and his team down to Berea to, to, to find rest. And, but that's not far enough because these folks from Thessalonica come down to Berea to get Paul. They're so angry. And so what this does is this, this moves Paul's team, if you will, if, if you call it a team, I guess, but um, it moves them to say, hey, look, buddy, we've got to get you out of here. So they put him on a boat, and they send him to Athens. This is not planned. This is not on the missionary journey. And, and that's where we find ourselves here as we read, begin reading in verse 16, as Paul is in Athens waiting for uh, Silas and Timothy to join him, Okay. So with that, let's begin in verse 16, reading uh, in Acts 17, uh, verse 16. Let's give our attention to the reading of God's word. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogues with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace, every day with those who, those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Verse 22. 
So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God. And perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone. An image formed by the art and imagination of man The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, excuse me, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray and ask God to teach us his word. Heavenly Father, we pray this morning that you would do a miracle. And by miracle, we pray that you would soften our hearts to receive your word, such as a seed that goes into good, soft soil and grows and produces a fruit, that we would leave here changed people. Would you, for your glory alone, open our eyes and our ears to see and hear things otherwise we could not. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I don't know if you have a, a, a story in Scripture that's like what I'm about to describe, but there are places in Scripture where, and let's take Jesus and the Gospels out of it for just a second. Um, there's places in Scripture where you see uh, men and women doing things that just kind of, you're just in awe of. And um, you know God's working through them. You know that they aren't the point, but that God is using them. And it's just, it's just incredible to watch. Um, this is one of these moments for me, and maybe that's because, you know, I'm a professional Christian as a pastor, you know, a, a nerd of theology, if you will, but there's a part of me that, you know, dreams of an opportunity that Paul gets here to sort of find himself in the center of Mecca of, 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 of culture in that day, and to be able to, in a winsome way, be able to have himself come before the, the greatest thinkers of his time. And woo them with his words, right? Um, of course, it's more complicated than that. And I'm not Paul. But uh, that is what we find here. And what I want us to, to look at and, and, and try to see with all that is here, because there's so much here, 
is, is really one thing, uh, or two things, and these are our points, is I want, I want us to see um, what gives Paul the opportunity to be heard by these Athenians. And then I also want to see what allows the Athenians to hear Paul, okay? So I want, to, I want us to see what gives Paul the opportunity to hear the Athenians, but I also want to see what allows the Athenians to hear Paul, because what I think we'll find, what we'll see in here, is that Paul demonstrates a ministry that is not something of his own. It's not something he just created. It's actually he's following Jesus as the continuation of Jesus' ministry the book of Acts is. And what that ministry is for Paul at this point is an incarnational ministry rooted in Jesus' own incarnation to take on flesh, to humble himself before others, to, to, to suffer with others, to know about others so that he might communicate to them not just how much he is interested in them, cares about them, but that how much he loves them. And Paul takes this on in, just, in a way that we don't see it anywhere else, really, here in Athens, in this sort of unplanned side journey in chapter 17. So with that, let's take that first one. What gives Paul the opportunity to be heard by the Athenians? What do you do when you find yourself, right, in one of the world's most ancient cities, with a little uh, bit of time in your hands, right? A city that's home to, up to this point, some of the world's greatest philosophical thinkers. You have Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, right? You have a place of renowned architecture and culture. Uh, many consider this place to be the cradle of Western civilization, the birthplace of democracy, music, ethics, theater, medicine. What do you do when you have a little time in your hands and you find yourself in this place? Well, hopefully, you get yourself out of the hotel and you go look around, right? You go check out this place, and that's exactly what Paul does. As we said, Athens was an unplanned stop for Paul on his second missionary journey. And as he is waiting, he decides to take in the city. So he looked and not only saw the beauties of Athens, as Luke records here, but he saw the brokenness of it as well. And it overwhelmed him, according to verse 16, as you see there, saying that what he saw provoked his spirit. And what is it that he actually saw? Well, the text specifically says that he saw that the city was full of idols. This adjective that Luke uses to describe the idols Paul saw isn't used anywhere else in the New Testament or in Greek literature. It literally means the city was under them. Stott, John Stott, a commentary, goes on to say, we might say that it was, quote, smothered with idols or, quote, swamped by them. Or to put it another way, a forest of idols. And now an idol is anything that you or I would look to or give ourselves to more than God. That we would look to this thing to give us happiness, to give us joy, wealth, whatever it is, more than God. But idols aren't really the statue, if you will, which is the form they took here in Athens. It's, what's, it's what actually the statue promises to give you if you worship it, which becomes the idol, which is to success, fertility maybe, um, wealth, etc. And so Paul saw this all over Athens, and it provoked his spirit or grieved him. And this word is really important for the rest of the narrative what this word for provoked means is the same word that God uses about himself towards Israel's idolatry in the Old Testament as they worshiped other gods than him. Isaiah records this in chapter 65, verses 2 to 3. The Lord says, I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people 
who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices, a people who provoke me to my face continually, sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on bricks. This is God to his covenant people, Israel. Scripture sometimes calls this emotion, this provoking jealousy. But it's not the type of jealousy that we might think of where I'm jealous of the new car that you bought this week. But the jealousy that arrives in a marriage when a spouse has been unfaithful. A righteous jealousy because there's all of a sudden a third party, if you will, that has shown up. Which in this case would be the force of idols that Paul sees people worshiping. A third party that has shown up that has no right to be there. And why? Because glory and honor only belongs to the God of the Bible. Isaiah goes on to say in chapter 42, among a host of other places, where the Lord says, I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to cared idols. What Paul is saying is that as he looked around, his soul was provoked in this jealous type of way because the Athenians were giving honor and giving glory to things that only belonged to God himself. What you might say is that the things that they were doing, it's not so much that they were um, wrong as much as misdirected. As people, as we will see, made in the image of God, created to worship God himself. But I also like to use the word what Paul saw here was spiritual adultery taking place right before Paul's eyes and it grieves him. It grieves him. So what does Paul do with this? What does Paul do with all that he's taken in at this point as Luke is, is giving us insight into? Well, in verse 17, it says that he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. In other words, Paul had conversations with people. Paul had dialogue with people. He did not look down on them, nor did he conduct himself in a way that was prideful. He pursued people. He went after them. He genuinely cared about them. And all of this leads to him being given the opportunity to be heard in this foreign place. Verse 18, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. So he's given the opportunity to speak to some of the greatest minds there, there is in Athens. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? And this word for babbler literally means scattered seed. As if Paul is this sort of uh, a farmer theologian walking around the world, gathering up bits of truth as, 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 as if they were like seeds and coming here and presenting this convoluted message. Right, this babbler wished to say. Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. The Greek word for resurrection is Anastasin, which also sounds like a female goddess in that time. They literally thought he was talking about two different gods, Jesus and Anastasin. Verse 19, and they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting for you bring some strange things to our ears. Which we wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. What gives them the opportunity to do that? What gives them the opportunity to be heard in this arena? We don't really have anything that we can sort of parallel the Areopagus to in our day. This would not be right, but it would be sort of like trying to get a hearing in front of the Supreme Court in some ways. 
What gives him the opportunity to do this? I want to suggest at this point what gives Paul the opportunity to be, hear, to be heard by them is his genuine love and curiosity for his audience. And the reason Paul has this love and this curiosity about the people in Athens and really anywhere we might say as we travel with him and the reason he is not afraid or even indifferent as he looks out and is grieved over what he sees is because he knows first and foremost that all people are made in the image of God, which means that all people what have value, no matter how different they are. In other words, there is something unique about Christianity that gives people value like nothing else in the world does. Y'all know that, right? And what does that, what does that is the fact that Genesis says that God made mankind in his image. That is, human beings, without doing anything, according to Scripture, have incredible value because they are made in the image of God who created the universe. Paul understands this about those he comes into contact with, even Athenians who worship a forest of idols. And it's this value, right, that he has in others because they are made in the image of God that draws Paul to love and to be curious about their lives just because they're human, right? When you first find out about Picasso and how his paintings are almost priceless, you become interested in cubism all of a sudden. You might not understand it. Um, I'm not sure I still do, right? But it's value what stirs your curiosity and it draws your attention to it. When you begin to date someone seriously, perhaps, or get engaged or celebrate 45 years of marriage, which my parents are doing today, you become curious about that person, Because you value or treasure them. In other words, their interests become yours. Their likes become your likes. The best marriages and relationships that I know of are those where curiosity to know more about the other person is never quenched. This is true for the Athenians for Paul. Even though their culture and way of life provoked his soul. For Paul, they have value because they are made in God's image, whether they recognize that or not. And this creates a genuine love and curiosity for them that ultimately gives him the opportunity to be heard. History shows us over and over that those that we have hatred for in our lives are those whom we think have very little value and ultimately we don't care about. This is what leads to, continue, to, to counting African Americans in our very own country at one point as only being three-fifths a man. It's what led the Nazis to almost exterminate an entire race of people in the Jews. But it's also what keeps you and me sometimes from doing the small things, like loving our neighbor. Something else is more valuable to you than knowing them, like your time, perhaps. But if Tom Hanks were to move in next door, right, something tells me you'd all of a sudden have more time for your neighborhood. Why? Because what we value garners our curiosity and our attention. We give our things, we give ourselves, sorry, to the things that we value. 
What the Bible is trying to do then is make what God values the same thing that we value as well. And God values people because they are made in his image, period. And it's that value that uh, alone that draws Paul into the lives of people like the Athenians who live under a forest of idols. Christians then should be the people in the world who have the most love for, who are the most uh, curious about and interested in, in all human beings, in all of life, no matter who they are. More than any other group, more than any other organization, more than any other institution or government, anything. Because no human invention has the ability to place value on a soul above the value given as the image of God. Whether you're in Jerusalem, Athens, or Fort Worth. That value is what powers Paul's genuine love and curiosity to walk around Athens and reason or dialogue in the synagogues and marketplaces, which ultimately is what gives him the opportunity to be heard in the arena in which we are reading today. The Areopagus, which we turn to next. If Paul's love and curiosity for those around him gives him the opportunity to be heard, what then will allow his audience, the Athenians here, to hear what Paul has to say? Well, as we look briefly at Paul's address, and we could spend a Sunday school uh, term on this whole address, in verses 22 to 31, we see, I mean, first and foremost, it's just a masterpiece of rhetoric, among other things, of course. But what it tells me and what I want you to take away is that the one, one of the things that it is, is it's an address that says, I care about the things that you care about. That's what Paul's saying, which requires what? Humility. It requires humility in Paul. And this humility as a learner of their culture opens the ears of Paul's audience to what? Ultimately hear him out. First, notice that nowhere does Paul quote from the Old Testament in this address or talk about Moses, etc., the way that he does when he is in a synagogue. And why? Well, because these are Greeks. They wouldn't know what he is talking about if he did this. A great lesson for Christians to keep in mind when we are talking to those who didn't grow up in the church. Instead, Paul actually quotes what? Their own pagan philosophers. Verse 28. Those are not scripture proofs, friends. Those are words from their own poets and philosophers. And see, you and I know, like, let's just take this small example. Well, you, know, you know, how much, how much, maybe I'll just speak for myself. I love it. When I recommend a movie or a restaurant or a podcast or something and some, or a book and somebody actually reads it. Like somebody actually goes to the restaurant. Somebody actually listens to the podcast. And why? Because it says, you take me seriously to some extent. Right? You respect me, sort of. You have something to learn from me, perhaps. To care to know something about the people around you demonstrates a humility in you that makes others want to listen to you. This, this entire message is a product of Paul knowing something about the people he finds himself talking to, what they value and what they love. It's how he knows there's an altar to an unknown God in the first place that allows him to bridge two completely different worldviews here which opens their ears to what he has to say. Everything up to verse 30 is actually Paul hitting the beliefs of those two major philosophical parties, the Stoics and the Epicureans. For example, when we look at verse 24, 
And I wish we had more time to go through all this, and we don't. When we look at verse 24, and Paul says, The God who made the world and everything in it, this would strike a chord with the Stoics, who believed in the unity of all things. But saying that God, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, or an image formed by the imagination of man, would have equally, equally struck a chord with the Epicureans who believe that God has no need for man-made shrines and sacrifices. In other words, Paul's words come from a process of what we call exegeting his audience, which says, I want to know who you are. And to contrast that, right, arrogance would be the opposite of this. It would be the opposite of humility in this instance. Arrogance says, I am more value, valuable, what, and therefore I only care about what interests me. Arrogance is an attitude of superiority. Humility, though, what? Is considering others more significant than yourself. Nothing turns my ears, and I would guess yours as well, off quicker than arrogance. At the same time, Nothing is more attractive than humility in the way someone else is interested in knowing me. It's a type of attraction that leads me to want to know more, which is exactly what happens for some in Paul's audience. By verse 30 and 31, Paul makes his departure with a message of repentance because God, quote, has fixed a day, as he says, on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Paul knows this is where his audience will disagree. Neither Stoics nor Epicureans believed in a resurrection or life after death. He knows this is the place that he loses some, if not most, but it's also what he has labored so hard to get to. To be able to get to this point in a way that his audience can hear and even understand, not just that judgment is coming and salvation has been arranged in Jesus Christ because of the resurrection, but perhaps more so that your desire, Athenians, to worship and to know about new things, it is not wrong. It's right. It's just misdirected. Let me show you where to direct your worship. Let me show you about the one whom you think is unknown to you, who is actually known to you. His name is Jesus. And Paul's humility allows his audience to begin to even hear that message. By verse 32, we read that some mocked while others said, we will hear you again. Great. In verse 34, Luke actually tells us that we read of those who came out and and believed And what Paul was saying. This is God at work. This is gospel mission. What allows Paul's audience, though, to hear what he has to say is not his arrogance or his pride, but his humility. So where did he get that? Well, the same place that you and I get that. From Jesus. What Paul does here in Acts 17 is not some super apostle, you know, powerful move here. Like he's got superhuman powers or something. Remember, Acts 17 is still the continuation of Jesus' ministry. Paul is not creating something new, a new method or anything like that. He's just following Jesus. The one who came to us in the form of a man and in humility counted others, what? More significant than himself. 
Paul will write that in Philippians 2. Jesus humbled himself by taking on our flesh, by becoming like us. Theologians call this the doctrine of the incarnation. And that's what Paul is modeling here. That's where he's getting this from. Because here's the good news for us this morning. So we try to land this plane. You don't have to be well-read like Paul. I don't have to be right, this, this sort of steward of culture like Paul here. It helps. You don't even have to quit your day job and devote yourself to full-time ministry to do this. All you have to do, as Paul says in Philippians 2.3, is in humility, count yourselves as less significant than others. Count others more significant than you. In other words, love your neighbor as yourself. That's modeling the incarnation. And see, sometimes church folk, right, we think that Jesus, when we think about the incarnation, we think Jesus had to come to earth. Jesus had to suffer and Jesus had to die. No, 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 no. Jesus didn't have to come to earth and suffer and die. Jesus wanted to. And there's a humongous difference in those two things. He wanted to come here. It was his joy to come here, to take on flesh, to walk in your shoes, to know your sorrows, your joys as well, to suffer, to suffer in the ways that you suffer, and then to die because he's more than curious to know you. He is fascinated by you. There wasn't anything that he would not do in the end to show you that, which is why why he goes to the cross for you so that there would be a day that the separation that sin has caused would would be no more, that his fascination for you would never end, that his curiosity for you would never be quenched for he would have you in eternity with him. Paul caught a glimpse of that and it's why he can come to Athens amongst their forest of idols and both be provoked by what he saw for love of his Savior but also be all in to love them as well. Because look, I want all of us Right? I want all of us here to have opportunities like Paul has here to share the gospel. And I want your audience, whoever that is for you this morning, to be able to hear what you have to say because it's the words of life. Which means I want you as a Christian in Fort Worth to have a genuine curiosity for people anywhere because they have value. Period. Because they're image bearers. And I want you to embody a humility that says to people, you're more significant than myself. Because people will want to listen to what you have to say. But listen, please, before we leave here. Gospel mission cannot, though, just be about those things. It cannot be just about getting opportunities to speak and priming our audience to hear the gospel. Hear that this morning. It must be about something bigger. It must be about genuine love for others. The kind of love that says, I'll come be where you are. I'll come be where you are physically, socially, mentally, whatever. It must be incarnational. Because that is where genuine love is felt. And you can't have that for others, friends, unless you know it's true for you this morning. Unless you know that Jesus came here, not because he had to, but because he wanted to. 
because he's fascinated by you, because in his humility, he thinks of you as more significant than himself. Try to get your arms around that this morning. And the cross, when we go out tomorrow, when we doubt this, the cross stands as the final testimony of that reality. I'll come be where you are because I love you. When you begin to believe that, you begin to move into the world powered by a love that the world needs, that the world doesn't know about, that the world is looking for in every idol we worship, every song we sing, every drink we drink, every experience we try to hold on to, everything we do. So what gives us the opportunity to be heard? What gives you the opportunity to be heard? What gives you, what gives those you talk to, the, op, you know, the reason to even listen to you? It must be genuine love marked out by curiosity and humility. In other words, a love that is incarnational. Are there opportunities in your life for this? Are there opportunities at school, on campus, in your office, in your families, all over this world as you travel? Yes. The opportunities are endless, right? Is anyone listening? Is anybody listening? If I had to describe our culture today, no one's listening. We're too busy trying to be heard. We're too busy giving platforms to send this tweet out here and this out there because we feel like we are owed the right to be heard. And it's in the midst of this context, right, perhaps this even Athenian context, that the church has a wonderful, wonderful opportunity to enter into that void with humility. Because that's attractive. The type of humility that we see happening in Jesus' own incarnation to give them a reason to listen because of the way that we love, because we see others as more significant than ourselves. Because, friends, that is how Jesus has loved you this very day. What would that look like for the church to begin to move in to our culture in that way? Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, just the incredible text that Luke records for us. We know it's not everything that Paul said. We know it's not everything that Paul did. But it is a beautiful testimony of the incarnational ministry and love that you have for us. That you saw us as more uh, valuable as more significant even than yourself, that you would take on flesh to come where we are. May that then produce in us not just a curiosity for those around us, but a humility for us to want to engage and to love as you have loved. That we may be able to look at others and love them just because it brings us joy for them to know that they are truly loved for no other reason. That's what you came to do. I pray that we would model that as your people. As we learn to follow you, as we continue to look at the book of Acts, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.